Section 19 of Letters of Mrs. Adams, Volume 1, by Charles Francis Adams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sue Anderson. Section 19, The Memoir, Part 5. The signature of the Treaty of Peace with Great Britain, which fully established the independence of the United States, did not terminate the residence of Mr. Adams in Europe. He was ordered by Congress to remain there, and, in conjunction with Dr. Franklin and Mr. Jefferson, to establish by treaty commercial relations with foreign powers. And, not long afterwards, a new commission was sent him as the first representative of the nation to him who had been their king. The duties prescribed seemed likely to require a residence sufficiently long to authorize him in a request that Mrs. Adams should join him in Europe. After some hesitation, she finally consented, and in June 1784, she sailed from Boston in a merchant vessel bound to London. The journal of her voyage, given in a letter to her sister, Mrs. Cranch, makes a part of the present collection. Note, Volume 2. From this date, the correspondence assumes a new character, Mrs. Adams found herself, at the age of forty, suddenly transplanted into a scene wholly new. From a life of the utmost retirement in a small and quiet country town of New England, she was at once transferred to the busy and bustling scenes of the populous and wealthy cities of Europe. Not only was her position novel to herself, but there had been nothing like it among her countrywomen. She was the first representative of her sex from the United States at the court of Great Britain. The impressions made upon her mind were therefore received when it was uncommonly open and free from the ordinary restraints which an established routine of precedence is apt to create. Her residence in France during the first year of her European experience appears to have been much enjoyed, notwithstanding the embarrassment felt by her from not speaking the language. That in England, which lasted three years, was somewhat affected by the temper of the sovereign. George and his queen could not get over the mortification attending the loss of the American colonies, nor at all times suppress the manifestation of it when the presence of their minister forced the subject on their recollection. Mrs. Adams's account of her presentation is among the letters of this period. It was not more than civilly met on the part of the Queen, whose subsequent conduct was hardly so good as on that occasion. Mrs. Adams appears never to have forgotten it, for at a much later period, when in consequence of the French Revolution, the throne of England was thought to be in danger, she writes to her daughter with regret at the prospect for the country, but without sympathy for the queen. Humiliation for Charlotte, she says, is no sorrow for me. She richly deserves her full portion for the contempt and scorn which she took pains to discover. Of course, the courtiers followed the lead thus given to them, and the impression made against America at the very outset of its national career has hardly been effaced down to this day. It is to be observed, however, 
that one circumstance contributed to operate against the situation of the first American minister to Great Britain, which has affected none of his successors. This was the conduct of the states whilst yet under the Confederation, justifying the general impression that they were incapable of the self-government, the right to which they had so zealously fought to obtain. Of the effect of this upon herself, Mrs. Adams will be found frequently to speak. Yet, notwithstanding these drawbacks, she seems to have enjoyed much her residence in the mother country. Her letters to her sisters during this period have been admitted almost in extenso in the present volume. They describe no scenes of particular novelty to the reading public, it is true, but they delineate in so natural and easy a manner the impressions received from objects new to the writer that it is hoped they will fully reward perusal. The period was not without its peculiar character to Americans. Their country, exhausted by her efforts in the War of Independence, had not yet put herself in the way of restoration by adopting a good form of government. It was even a matter of doubt whether her liberty was likely to prove a blessing or to degenerate into a curse. On the other hand, France, Holland, and Great Britain, respectively, presented an outward spectacle of wealth and prosperity not perceptibly impaired by the violent struggle between them that had just terminated. This contrast is frequently marked in the letters of Mrs. Adams, but the perception of it does not appear to have in any degree qualified the earnestness of her attachment to her own very modest home. Whatever will be the fate of our country, she says to her sister, we have determined to come home and share it with you. She had very little of that susceptibility of transfer which is a characteristic not less of the cultivated and wealthy class of our countrymen who cling to the luxury of the old world than of the adventurous and hardy sons of labor who carve out for themselves a new home in the forests of the West. The return of Mr. Adams with his family to the United States, the liberty for which was granted by Congress to his own request, was simultaneous with the adoption of the present Constitution by the decision of the ratifying conventions. Upon the organization of the government under the new form, he was elected to fill the office of vice-president, that of president being, by a more general consent, awarded to General Washington. By this arrangement, a residence at the seat of government during the sessions of the Senate was made necessary and as that was fixed first at New York and then at Philadelphia, Mrs. Adams enjoyed an opportunity to mix freely with the society of both places. Some of her letters descriptive of it have been selected for publication in this collection. The voluntary retirement of General Washington at the end of eight years from the presidency was the signal for the great struggle between the two political parties which had been rapidly maturing their organization during his term of administration. Mr. Adams was elected his successor by a bare majority of the electoral colleges and against the inclination of one section even of that party which supported him. 
the open defection of that section at the following election turned the scale against him and brought Mr. Jefferson into his place. Of course, the letters of Mrs. Adams at this period largely partake of the excitement of the day. From early life she had learnt to take a deep interest in the course of political affairs, and it was not to be supposed that this would decline whilst her husband was a chief actor in the scene and a butt for the most malignant shafts which party animosity could throw. As it is not the design of this publication to revive any old disputes, most of these letters have been excluded from it. Two or three exceptions, however, have been made. The first is the letter of the 8th of February, 1797, the day upon which the votes for president were counted, and Mr. Adams, as vice-president, was required by law to announce himself the president-elect for the ensuing term. This, though extremely short, appears to the editor to be the gem of the collection, for the exalted feeling of the moment shines out with all the luster of ancient patriotism. Perhaps there is not, among the whole number of her letters, one which, in its spirit, brings so strongly to mind as this does the celebrated Roman lady whose signature she at one time assumed, whilst it is chastened by a sentiment of Christian humility of which ancient history furnishes no example. At this time the health of Mrs. Adams, which had never been very firm, began decidedly to fail. Her residence at Philadelphia had not been favorable, as it had subjected her to the attack of an intermittent fever from the effects of which she was never afterwards perfectly free. The desire to enjoy the bracing air of her native climate, as well as to keep together the private property of her husband, upon which she early foresaw that he would be obliged to rely for their support in their last years, prompted her to reside much of the time at Quincy. Such was the name now given to that part of the ancient town of Braintree in which she had always lived. Yet when at the seat of government, whether in Philadelphia or Washington, the influence of her kindly feelings and cheerful temper did much to soften the asperities of the time. A good deal of the privations and discomforts to which she was subjected in the President's house at Washington, when that place had scarcely emerged from the primitive forest, may be formed from one or two other letters, which in this view are accepted from the general exclusion. In the midst of public or private troubles, the buoyant spirit of Mrs. Adams never forsook her. I am a mortal enemy, she writes upon one occasion to her husband, to anything but a cheerful countenance and a merry heart, which, Solomon tells us, does good like a medicine. This spirit contributed greatly to lift up his heart when, surrounded by difficulties and danger, exposed to open hostility and secret detraction, and resisting a torrent of invective such as it may well be doubted whether any other individual in public station in the United States has ever tried to stem. It was this spirit which soothed his wounded feelings when the country which he had served in the full consciousness of the perfect honesty of his motives 
threw him off and signified its preference for other statesmen. There often are, even in this life, more compensations for the severest of the troubles that afflict mankind than we are apt to think. It may be questioned whether Mr. Adams's more successful rival, who, in the day of his power, wielded popular masses with far greater skill and success than he, ever realized, in the hours of his subsequent retirement, any consolation for his pecuniary embarrassments, like that which Mr. Adams enjoyed from the faithful devotedness of his wife, and, it may be added, the successful labors of his son. There were many persons, in the lifetime of the parties, who ascribed to Mrs. Adams a degree of influence over the public conduct of her husband, far greater than there was any foundation for in truth. Perhaps it is giving more than its due importance to this idea, to take any notice at all of it in this place. But the design of this memoir is to set forth, in as clear a light as possible, the character of its subject, and this cannot well be done without a full explanation of her personal relations to those about her, that her opinions, even upon public affairs, had at all times great weight with her husband, is unquestionably true, for he frequently marked upon her letters his testimony to their solidity, but there is no evidence that they either originated or materially altered any part of the course he had laid out for himself. Whenever she differed in sentiment from him, which was sometimes the case, she perfectly well understood her own position, and that the best way of recommending her views was by entire concession. The character of Mr. Adams is clearly visible in his own papers. Ardent, vehement in support of what he believed to be right, easily roused to anger by opposition, but sincere, placable, and generous when made conscious of having committed the slightest wrong, there is no individual of this time about whom there are so few concealments of either faults or virtues. Instances of his imprudence are visible, and of the mode in which his wife treated them in at least two letters of this volume. She was certain that a word said, not at the moment of irritation, but immediately after it had passed, would receive great consideration from him. She therefore waited the favorable time, and thus, by the calmness of her judgment, exercised a species of negative influence, which often prevented evil consequences from momentary indiscretion but her power extended no further, nor did she seek to make it do so, and in this consisted her principal merit. Perhaps it may be added that to men of ardent and excitable temperament no virtue is more necessary in a wife, and none more essential to the happiness and prosperity of both the parties than that which has been now described." Four letters addressed to Mr. Jefferson in the year 1804 have been admitted into the present collection for reasons which require a particular explanation. The answers written by that gentleman were published some time since in the collection of his works made under the authority and supervision of his grandson, Mr. Thomas Jefferson Randolph, 
though unaccompanied by any comment which would show what it was they replied to, or how Mrs. Adams got into the rather singular position which she occupies of a disputant with him upon the leading political questions of the time. In order to understand this, it is necessary to go back and trace the early relations between the parties and the reasons why those relations were afterwards changed. Mr. Jefferson went to Europe at nearly the same time with Mrs. Adams. Their residence there was of similar duration, though not always in the same place. Throughout the period of that residence, an active interchange of good offices was carried on between them. The official connection that existed between Mr. Jefferson and Mr. Adams, while the latter remained in France, was improved into a pleasant social intimacy, and out of the small circle of Americans whom Mrs. Adams met with in that country, Mr. Jefferson could hardly have failed to prove, as he did, by far the most agreeable individual to her. It will hence be seen that upon her departure from Paris, the principal regret which she expresses to her friend in America is at the necessity of leaving that gentleman, for he, she adds, is one of the choice ones of the earth. Again, she manifests the confidence which she entertains, both in his patriotism and in his personal friendship, in a letter written to another friend after her arrival in London. Her kindly feelings were still further developed by the arrival of his little daughter from Virginia, and by the care she was requested by him to take of her during the brief interval that elapsed before he could send for her to join him. Indeed, so far did they go, that when the moment of departure took place, the affectionate regret which the child manifested at the separation appears to have left an indelible impression upon her mind. From the incidental notices thus gathered out of Mrs. Adams's private correspondence with her friends at home, it cannot be doubted that up to the period of return to America of the parties now in question, the most amicable relations had existed without interruption between them. Even after that time, and when, under the administration of President Washington, it became certain that a difference in political sentiments must inevitably have the effect to throw two persons so distinguished as Mr. Jefferson and Mr. Adams were into collision, the social intimacy between them, though slightly relaxed, was not materially disturbed. The address of the former gentleman to the Senate, upon taking his place as vice-president, shows the desire he then entertained to continue it. But events were destined to be stronger than men. The vehement contest for the presidency in 1801 scattered to the winds all traces of former friendship. It was at that time that each party in turn strove to discover in certain overt acts of the other a justification for estrangement, which would as certainly have occurred whether those acts had or had not been committed with a design to give it a form of expression. It is not in the nature of men to be able entirely to resist the force of those passions which rivalry in a common object of ardent desire will stir up in their bosoms. 
the earnestness with which Mr. Jefferson endeavors to deny their operation upon him, whilst every page of his letters shows as clearly as light how much sway they had over him, constitutes the most serious impeachment that can be brought against his sincerity. There is an appearance of duplicity in this part of his conduct, which it is difficult altogether to explain away. The writer does not, however, attach great weight to the charge in this instance, for the fact can scarcely be doubted that both Mr. Adams and Mr. Jefferson tried, as hard as men could do, to resist the natural effect upon them of their antagonist positions. They strove, each in turn, to stem the proscriptive fury of the parties to which they belonged, and that with equally bad success. But as the mode in which they attempted it is singularly illustrative of the opposite character of the two men, perhaps it may not be without its use to the present generation to venture upon a feeble description of it. It is a well-attested fact that Mr. Adams hardly attained to the presidency before he began to devise a mode by which he could bring into office those leading individuals of the party politically opposed to him whom he personally esteemed. His offers to Mr. Jefferson, to Mr. Madison, and to Mr. Gary, the last of whom only accepted them, are perfectly well known. These offers were not, however, made without prodigious resistance on the part of numbers of his own political friends, and probably contributed much to weaken the attachment of many and to promote the disaffection of more of them. The consequence was his fall from power as the penalty of a disregard to prudent counsels. On the other hand, Mr. Jefferson, when elected to the same office, though professing much goodwill towards and personal esteem of his opponent, Mr. Adams, yet candidly admits that he suffered the dictates of his heart to be overruled by the decided negative interposed to action upon them on the part of his partisan advisers. It is not probable that, even had he carried into effect his proposed design to offer to Mr. Adams an office of trust and profit in Massachusetts, this gentleman would have accepted it. But the offer alone would have been invaluable to him at the moment of defeat, as a testimonial openly given by his successful rival, both to his public and private integrity, and it would have forever after estopped the friends of the victorious candidate from taking any ungenerous advantage of their victory over him. But the prudence of Mr. Jefferson gained the mastery over his liberality of feeling. It went even further, for not content with doing nothing at all for his rival, he actually inflicted upon him a blow he removed, without cause assigned, his son, John Quincy Adams, from a very subordinate office the instant that it happened to come within the reach of his reforming power. This was perhaps the act that carried with it the most of bitterness to Mr. and Mrs. Adams. It is no more than due to the author of it to add his explanation. He solemnly affirms that he made the removal without knowing whom he was removing. Perhaps the great majority of readers will agree with the writer in thinking 
much less unfavorably of the deed itself than of the apology it was thought advisable to make for it. For, after all, it can never be any great impeachment of Mr. Jefferson to say that he attempted no serious opposition to the party torrent that bore him into power, a torrent which must always have its course in the United States, let who will endeavor to resist it. He knew the effort would be futile, and could be executed only to his own destruction. The true ground of exception against him is that, seeing and feeling the necessity of submission, he did not do it at once with perfect frankness. Considering the very high opinion which he continued to profess toward his rival, and which there is no doubt he felt when his interests were not so deeply involved as to lead him to suppress it, it would seem as if he was under some responsibility for the odium which it was in his day, and still is the pleasure of his political disciples, very unjustly to cast upon Mr. Adams. There were, doubtless, great and radical differences of opinion upon abstract points in the theory of government between the two gentlemen, and the soundness of their respective notions, as Mr. Jefferson truly remarks, yet remains to be tested by the passage of time and the world's experience. In the meanwhile, however, there is no more reason for condemning the one party on account of his opinions than the other. Yet, notwithstanding the frequent admission of this truth in his private letters, it can scarcely be denied that Mr. Jefferson drew, during his public life, every possible advantage from the prevalence of a wholly opposite conviction in the popular mind. A very large number of the citizens of the Union were impressed not simply with a dislike of the sentiments of Mr. Adams, but with a conviction that our Republican institutions were in danger from their predominance in his person. This conviction, which was never entertained by Mr. Jefferson, a few words inserted in any document designed to be public and from his own hand when president, would have gone very far to dispel. He never chose to give this form of utterance to them. It consequently happened that whilst he could affirm that in private none ever misrepresented Mr. Adams in his presence without his asserting his just character, his official conduct and the tone of all his political friends was constantly giving a sanction to the grossest and most unequivocal misrepresentations of him. And whilst he was professing in secret a wish to give him an honorable office, his party was studiously making his very name a word of fear to all the less intelligent classes of the community. This inconsistency may have been, it is true, a consequence not so much of the will of Mr. Jefferson, as of the necessity in which he was placed. Much allowance must often be made for the difficult positions of our public statesmen. He is also entitled to much credit for his voluntary efforts in after life to repair the injury he must have been aware he had committed. This conduct on his part was not without a degree of magnanimity, which may have its use as an example to future political rivals in America. 
there will doubtless be many instances in our history in which the victor in party strife will have gained much by fomenting popular prejudices against his opponent but it is not equally certain that there will be as many in which he will afterwards endeavor to repair the injury done by leaving behind him upon record the amplest testimonials to that opponent's public virtue it is by no means the disposition of the present writer to judge with an undue degree of harshness but no duty appears to him more absolutely incumbent upon all who address the american public than that of exercising the faculty of clear moral discrimination and he should have felt himself deserving of censure if he had omitted to attempt it to this extent upon the present occasion. End of section 19